Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles and open them to Genesis chapter 34 as we start a new chapter. And the title of our Bible study is Taking Revenge Only Makes Things Worse. And I wonder how many just the title of the message is a word from the Lord for you. Taking revenge is only going to make things worse. As we study through the life of David, many times in his life he would take things into his own hands and he only made things worse. And definitely revenge will make things worse. And that simply is a truth from God's word. But there is a joy in reconciliation. We saw that between Jacob and his brother Esau, finally brought back together by grace, only to separate again. But as they came back together, Jacob didn't have to worry about this threat of murder from his brother. It got worked out. God has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. God's heart is to bring people together, bring people to him, to each other. You can jot it down in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciliation first starts between man and God through Jesus Christ. And through that reconciliation, then men and women are brought together or brought back together. Reconciliation and forgiveness are two important truths that, it, that you learn and you grasp. If you want help in the area of forgiveness and reconciliation, on either side of the stage, there are pamphlets that we have that we make available to you on these very subjects. You don't want to be held back by unforgiveness. And it's true. You, you might be listening to me, right? but eh, they don't want to be reconciled. It's true. Some people simply don't want to be reconciled. Unfortunately, it's not merely some, it actually is many don't want it. That's not for us to be overly concerned with, who doesn't want reconciliation, but rather it's for us to pay attention to obeying God and moving forward. Remember what Jesus said? I was reminded when I was jotting this down in John 21, uh, Jesus said, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. And that's where our strength should be. As we jump into chapter 34, we're reminded that sin does have its consequences. Except for the graciousness of God, you will not be able to avoid the consequences of sin. Sometimes the consequences can be very twisted and wrapped up with layers of difficulty and long-lasting. Tragedy hits Jacob home, Jacob's home in this chapter, and the response is devastating. This is a difficult and horrible chapter in the Bible. It's filled with rape, rage, murder, 
There's an absent father, even though he's there physically. There are rage-filled sons. There is a hurt, damaged woman. And even though Jacob was there physically, emotionally, he was very distant. One of the sad, sorrowful testimonies of Jacob's life was his lack of parenting. Not only that, but he doesn't express love to Leah and spent most of his time in affection on Rachel. It's just a messed up family. Yet, God still uses Jacob. (laughs) We always ask the question, and it's repeated over and over again, but why? We've been conditioned. If you do good, only good comes, and you do bad, bad comes, but the opposite is true sometimes. You do good, and you experience great pain. And you do bad, and you don't seem to experience the fullness of consequences that other people do. And there's a word for why God uses Jacob. But the real question isn't why God uses Jacob. The real question is, is why does God use you and me? With the highlight and the spotlight on Jacob, I think we have to also use the Bible as it describes to us as a mirror. And we ask, why would God use us? What what is it about us? What is it exactly about you and about me that makes us so special, that puts us in a different category? that we are in a different place than Jacob. Oh sure, maybe we have loyalty in one person in marriage, or perhaps yes, we're a little more progressed as parents, or on and on the list goes as we compare ourselves to Jacob. But you see, our comparison is not to Jacob. Our comparison is to Jesus. And as we look to Jesus, we see, oh Lord, there's so much room for us to be conformed into your image. There's so much room for us to grow in your grace. There's so much for us to grow in our love for you. Why does God use Jacob? Because he's gracious and he's compassionate and he's merciful. James chapter five and verse 11, it says, don't you know that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful? We learn in the Bible, it always tells us the truth about men and women. It doesn't gloss over the difficulties in a person that God has chosen to use. Even God's heroes, if you want to use that word, the highlighted men and women that have gone before us, even God's heroes are not perfect. The truth that God loves his children is evident. The truth that God is patient in his work in you and me and in us is evident. Change, sanctification, being conformed in the image of Christ takes time. And might I add, that the fruit of the Spirit is long-suffering, and that when you and I are walking in the Spirit, we also can be patient with the work that God is doing in us. We speak a lot about the patience that we may have with those in our lives, and certainly we need patience and long-suffering with one another. But for some, you need patience and long-suffering for yourself, for what God's doing in your life, that he is at work, You may only see how far you have to go, but one thing that's helpful is to see how far you've come. Look at where you're at today. Loving the Lord and serving him with your life. Concerned about the issues in your life. Concerned about your thoughts and your actions. Turning your heart, like the Bible says, back to the home, back to the kids, back to your marriage. Looking at your singleness in purity. Wanting to serve God. Be patient with yourself. Be gracious with yourself. 
Take the steps forward. I know you might be scared that if you're gracious and patient with yourself, you might give some kind of approval to sin. That's not the fruit of the Spirit, giving approval to sin. Or saying, well, you know, God's not finished with me yet, so I'll continue to sin so that grace may abound. That's not the fruit of the Spirit. That's your flesh. Your flesh approves of sin. Your flesh approves of your bad attitude. Your flesh makes excuses. Your flesh overlooks. But the fruit of the Spirit is patient and humble. It's filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness. Have you ever noticed that while you're living in the flesh, you have no peace? You have no peace. You're, dis- you're a disrupted believer. You're troubled in spirit. You weren't designed to live in a rebellious place against God. You were designed to cooperate, or cooperation is a nicer word for obey and surrender. That's what you were born for. That's God's will for our lives. Let, let us learn today from Jacob that although God is gracious, he didn't have to go this way. Neither do you. And by the way, as we jump into the chapter today, if you read ahead, you may have noticed that in chapter 34, the name of the Lord isn't mentioned once. Which also reminds me that neither is the wisdom of God in this chapter. Everybody's doing their own things. Remember when we studied Judges so many years ago? I know many of you weren't with us, but we studied Judges. And the big issue in the day of the Judges was that everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. Chapter 34 is a small picture of the same thing. Everybody doing what is right in their own eyes against the wisdom of God. Notice with me in verse one now. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the country saw her, he took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this young woman as a wife. Jacob and his family have moved to the city and Dinah wants to see the city. As she goes out to view it, she's raped by Shechem, the son of Hamor. And I want you to notice contextually what happens here. It says in verse two that he saw her and he took her and he violated her. Today we may call this date rape as he remains within her relationship. Dinah was violated grossly. I believe she was a target of Shechem. The pagans of Canaan This comes back later on in the history of Israel, but the pagan life of the Canaanites, they had different standards of life. They lived by a different code of conduct. They lived of their own idolatrous ways. They were unrestrained and separated from God. What today we would say, this is the world. The world lives today with a different standard of life. It is moving, it constantly moves, depending on who's in authority, depending on whose voices are the loudest. It's constantly moving. You could say, uh, as some do, that they're always moving the goalposts. 
You might understand the way the world's going and then they shift and then they shift and then they shift. The world in which we live today is unrestrained, separate from God. And here's the dangerous thing about the culture and about the world in which we live. It's very attractive and very alluring, especially to our kids. It's important you understand that. Our young people need to be raised in a way to understand the world in which we live. It's very hard for a kid that's been sheltered their whole life to be thrust into the world. They need to be equipped and prepared. And you as parents go, well, well, how do I do that? Well, it begins by praying, asking God for wisdom, understanding the world in which we live and preparing our kids at age-appropriate levels. The Bible word for that is parents, grandparents, you have a responsibility to disciple your children, to train them in the ways of the Lord, to pray with them, to help give context to what they see and what they hear. How we need to pray for our kids, fill them with the word, and listen, this is the key model for them what it looks like for a believer to live in this world. The model is so important. The example. I'm telling you right now, for someone needs to hear this, this idea that has been passed on to us over the years where it's okay for a parent to tell their kid, do as I say, but not, don't do as I do, is going to destroy your kids. It doesn't work. You don't need to take your chances. Like you go, you know, pastor, I'll take my chances. Don't. You're dealing with kids. These kids belong to the Lord. They're a heritage unto the Lord, the Bible says. They've been entrusted to you. I know today we we have governmental leaders as, oh, they're our kids. They're not the government's kids. They're your kids. You've You've been given responsibility for them. You and I, we will be given and stand an account for how we've raised our children. Here, here, let me show you. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6 and allow the word of the Lord to permeate your heart today. Don't beat yourself up. Don't kick yourself. Don't regret. Just pick up the pieces and start today. No matter what age your kids are, where they are, in the home, young, old, just pick up the pieces. Deuteronomy chapter 6, foundational for us As parents, verse 4, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. How do you raise the next generation? You love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind. You allow him to permeate your life. And, verse 6, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart, And after they're in your heart, you've assimilated them, then you are to teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It's your responsibility, parents, and God will enable you and he will help you. 
Very frequently and very often, I'll have someone email me and go, you know, pastor, you should teach a message on this, and you should teach a message on that. And you know what my answer is? You should study it, and you teach the message. It's your home. It's your family. Open up your Bible and study it. Buy a concordance. Go to blueletterbible.org and start studying and looking things up. You don't need me to teach the Bible study. You teach it. And you're like, well, pastor, you're the pastor. What do we pay you for? You don't pay me. The Lord provides for the needs of my home. It's like he provides for the needs of your home. And I'll teach the Bible and I'll be in prayer, but you think like this is like karaoke? I could take requests of what I'm going to teach, what I'm not going to teach? If it's so heavy on your heart, the Lord will enable you to learn it for your family. Uh, you know, don't, don't stop the desire for biblical knowledge. Don't, well, I will never email you again. You can email me again and I'll tell you, here, look it up and study it for yourself. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. But if you think, and this is, what, this is where I'm going, if you think that all the problems you're facing will be solved by one Bible study that you personally requested, you're, you're in a different world. You're, it, it just, if, if there's resistance to the Holy Spirit, there's a good chance they're going to resist me too. And it's rebuilding of relationship of what God wants to do, as, whether it's parents whether it is kids, and certainly I'm in prayer, what I believe the Lord would have for us as a church, what the Lord would have for us as a team, what the Lord would have for us as leaders, what the Lord would have for us in my family, with my wife, with my own children, but the Lord has entrusted you to be the primary disciples of your kids, and the world wants your kids. The world wants our children, and the solution is not to run to the mountains and carve out a cave and hide them in the cave. It's to disciple them, to prepare them, just like you do, to live in this sin-sick world and to guard and protect them and to help them with perspective. Don't be an absent mom. Don't be an absent dad. Be engaged with your kids. Learn. If they resist you one way, learn another way. Like if they're, they're pushing back, oh, mom, oh, dad. Then pray for another way. Pray for a way into their hearts that they will trust you if they've lost trust in you. Ask for their forgiveness. If you failed them up to this point, just ask them for forgiveness. Say, you know what? Things are going to be different from this day forward. Look them in the eye and tell them, God has given me a revelation from the word. Let me read it to you and show them that the authority in that home is the word of God. It's not the wishy-washiness of us as people, because we can be, it's the word of God. And you can open up Deuteronomy and say, you know, I haven't been doing this, but you can hold me accountable to this. If I forget to read or I'm off doing something or I'm on my phone, you have permission to come and knock it out of my hands. Imagine telling your kids that. And you go, but Ed, they'll do it 30 times a day. Right? That's the whole point. My kids are always on the phone, why? It's a good chance you are. Look, what the Lord is calling us to is to pay attention to our kids. He'll lead you and he'll guide you. But do so with character and integrity. Do so with a humility and a brokenness. Do so in such a way where, man, I want my kids to hear me. I just don't want to be heard. There's a big difference. I don't want my voice permeating through the house yelling, screaming, demanding. I want my voice to be heard. 
I want my kids to seek out my voice when they have a question. I want them to be able to trust me. And I've raised my kids into adulthood already, and I'm telling you, I made a lot of mistakes. There's no doubt. You can ask my kids, but you don't have permission to ask them of all the mistakes. And they might remember some, and I remember some that they don't remember. But you know, God's gracious, and he got us through. We were able to make it through. We were able to get over the difficulties and the hardships and the mistakes that I made or raising my voice or being more important to say something than to be heard. And there's a loving care. There's something happens when you pray with your kids where you just hear their little hearts. <laughs> oh, but my kid's 30. Well, he's got a little bit bigger heart, but it's cool to hear him pray because <laughs> they're your kids. God has given them to you. And here, Jacob's daughter, she's hurt and violated. And as you'll see, it's, Jacob isn't responsible for this particular sin in the world. He's not responsible for it. But he's greatly hurt by it. And in chapter 34, it doesn't change him. That's what's sad. Do you know the Bible describes the world in Philippians chapter 2 as crooked and perverse? It's a crooked and perverse generation that we're in. John would say in 1 John chapter 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Shechem takes advantage and violates and hurts Dinah so deeply and then demands that her dad take her as his wife, verse 5. Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. And the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it. And the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamor spoke with them saying, the soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give to her to him as your wife or as a wife and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. So you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in and acquire possessions for yourselves in it. Jacob hears about it and doesn't do anything. Hamor comes and notice there's no apology. The world doesn't apologize for its sin. It glorifies it and celebrates it. There's no apology. There's no confession of wrongdoing. There's no sympathy, no empathy, no compassion. No suggestion that Shechem will pay for such a violation. Why? Because Hamor really doesn't care. He's only looking to the future, insensitive to the sin. Church, you have to understand something. The world doesn't care about sin. They are insensitive to something you are hypersensitive to, that you pay now pay attention to. Why? Because you are a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. 
You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you that has made you sensitive to sin in yourself and in others. But don't be shocked when the world doesn't care about sin. It is a different set of standards. That's why the Bible tells us that when you are in spiritual warfare, that the weapons of your warfare are not carnal. Or a better way of saying that, they're not human. I wonder how many times we try to fight a spiritual battle with our mouths. And the Bible says, you know what? The battle, the battle you're waging isn't going to be won with words, argumentations, complaining, and all sorts of things. The weapons of our warfare are mighty in God for the breaking down of strongholds and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. If we would talk to God instead of talking about other things, I believe God would change things much more rapid than what we're currently expecting. That God would give us, remember judgment begins in the house of the Lord, not in the world. Judgment begins with us who have a relationship with God. Just like with you, we're talking about kids and you, know, you don't go around disciplining other people's kids. You better not. You discipline your own kids. That's who you're responsible for. You can't walk around and be disciplined in other people's kids. They're not your kids. You can talk to their parents about it. You can talk to their grandparents about it, but you aren't going to be able to do it. They're not your kids. So you don't overlook the sins of your kids and go looking for everyone else's. Your responsibilities at home. You live by this practice already. You may not even realize it. When, when there's judgment, it begins in your house. Not my house. My house, I'm overseeing. Your house, you oversee. And so much of our discipleship today and our training and our teaching is to help you oversee your house. And as we oversee our houses, then the house of God will be in much better order. Did you know that? <laughs> even the elders of the church, I was reading 1 Timothy 3 recently, and even the elders of the church, the Bible says that they need to rule their own house well. Because otherwise, how will they know how to rule the church? And the word rule is lead and oversee. How would they, if they can't even run their own house well, how are they going to be able to serve in the church? And I'll tell you right now, they won't. They won't be able to serve in the church well. I have met a lot of men over the years, though, that would rather oversee your house than their house. And they don't make it. They can only live with that facade for so long. Believe me, every... Everybody that's entrusted the ministry here sits in my office or is on the phone with me and I will ask them this question. I will go through 1 Timothy 3 with them and I'll read it to them and I will ask this question. Does anything on this list disqualify you today? And of course, anybody that's here that's serving on, they'll, they'll, they would have said no in my office. If it's true, then they'll be very fruitful. <laughs> and they'll just be stepping into your life, ministering to you. Things are well at home, not perfect. Things are well at home. They're, they're, things are well at the church. But over time, if they should have said yes, things that are hidden are always revealed. And why would we want to take our chances? Why don't we? Why, it's so much easier just to surrender to the Lord than to continue to rebel against Him. And here, and Hamor, he doesn't care. He doesn't care at all. He can only see the future. The brothers come in, and notice in verse 7, they're ticked off. Their sister's been hurt. They are very angry, it says, furious. Israel's been defiled. 
It's shameful. Here's Hamar's uh, solution. Let's intermarry. That's the solution. Join us. Let's join together. This horrible, horrific thing has happened with your daughter, but here's the solution. Let's marry. Let's give our daughters and sons to each other, and you'll enjoy the land, and I'll enjoy the land, and my son will be happy. You remember, we've studied now up to verse thir- or chapter 34, Abraham was told not to do this. Abraham taught his son Isaac, don't you do this. Isaac has taught his son Jacob, don't you do this. Don't marry outside of the family. They've even made great links not to have their sons marry someone outside of Israel. And they say, you'll inherit the land. That was the offer. The world always has this deceptive offer to you. You're most at risk when you're vulnerable. Some life event, some traumatic event, you're very vulnerable. What does Hamor offer to him? You can have the land. What? Hamor doesn't even know what he's talking about. You want to know why? The land already belongs to Jacob. God's promised it to him. He already owns it. What Hamor doesn't know yet is he's going to be displaced. God has already given him the land. And I think how often the world offers us, offers us some fake, some deceptive fake of something that God has given to you already and is greater. God, the world says, here is happiness. Here's happiness. Just do this. And, and it's tempting. It's, it's sinful. It, it is compromising. Here, just do this and you'll have happiness. You'll have happiness. You'll have happiness when God has given you joy. Why would you give away your joy for fake, temporary, sinful happiness? Look, the promises of God, understand this. With the promises of God, we never want to compromise to get them. We want to wait. Abraham's already made this mistake with Ishmael. With the promises of God, we never want to compromise to get them or acquire them. We want to wait. You don't need to look to some twisted scheme or the world's manipulations. Waiting on the Lord will renew your strength. The world might offer you love. God has promised you love in Jeremiah 31. The world might offer to provide for you some rays or something. God's already promised to provide for you, Deuteronomy chapter 32. The world offers to hold you up and sustain you and get you through. God's already promised that in Psalm 55. And on top of that, all of the practical things, Jesus taught us to seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added unto you. Matthew 6.33. The world can only offer cheap substitutions. You don't have to wheel and deal. You don't have to fret and worry, scheme and plan, or manipulate the situation. Just trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. Acknowledge him in all your ways, and what? He'll direct your paths. In 1 Peter 5, it says, Therefore humble yourselves, verse 6, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. That's the difficulty, isn't it? The timing of God. Our timing is often not God's timing. And we refuse to wait and to trust and to obey and to abide so that as we abide in Christ, he abides in us. 
And as we abide in his word, his word abides in us. Notice with me in verse 11, Shechem. Shechem should just be quiet. He should just shut up. But his voice is elevated in a world that doesn't care. Shechem's, violators, evil. Evil people's voice in our world today gets all the attention. Shechem speaks up and said to her father, how dare you speak to her father, Shechem? But notice, let me find favor in your eyes. That the next verse, Jacob said, you know what? Get out of my place, man, get out of my face. But he doesn't. Let me find favor in your eyes. Whatever you say to me, uh, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift and I'll give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. And dad doesn't say anything, but the sons jump in and answer Shechem and Hamor, his father. But they spoke deceitfully. This is where revenge comes in. Because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. For that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we'll consent to you. If you will become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you and we will take your daughters to us and we will dwell with you and we will become one people. But if you will not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamor and Shechem, Hamor's son. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. So the rapist is viewed as the most honorable one. Even today, the Bible predicted, the Bible spoke of a time where people would call good evil and evil good. Certainly we have that in our own culture today, but we see this, this is a part of the human sinful condition. And while Hamor was the most honorable, you can see from the perspective of just how wicked and evil the Canaanites really were, the Hivites, the ites of the land in the land of Canaan. We notice Jacob's sons in verse 13 have learned well from their dad as they speak deceitfully. Where do you think they learned that from? But their dad and Laban, they grew up with it. They have a plan to take care of this family. And you see they truly did want Dinah. He was greedy, Shechem was, and covetous. Greed and covetousness will make a good man bad and it will make a bad man worse. You can pay attention in the Bible how many times covetousness, we're warned against it, the sin of coveting. Paul himself would say that he was covetous but he didn't even know it, how bad it was until he saw it in the scriptures. So I didn't even know I was covetous until I read it. I'm like, oh, that's me as it was revealed by the Holy Spirit to him. Today, greed and covetousness rule the day. The thought of gaining more, having more, taking more, burns within the hearts of many today. It drives so many sinful decisions. People are willing to do almost anything to get more, to ride over people and sell out people and take advantage of people. They will steal and deceive and lie and cheat, neglect their families, ruin their names, and the list continues. 
But the Bible stands clear in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servant or his female servant nor his ox or his donkey or anything that's in your neighbor's. And today we go, ha, 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 my neighbor doesn't have an ox or a donkey. Has a car. Has a nice backyard. Things that you look over the fence and you go, man, I want that. I don't just want it from the store. I want the one that he got. And then covetousness. It's not fair, Lord. It's not right, Lord. Look at me. Psalm 10, verse 3 The wicked boasts of his heart's desires. He blesses the greedy and renounces the Lord. Greed is blessed in our culture by the wicked. In Luke 12, verse 15, I want you to see this one. Would you turn over in Luke with me? Because you may not have known this is in the scriptures, but listen to the teachings of Jesus in his ministry in Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. Luke chapter 12 in verse 15. He says, take heed, that's warning, and beware of, what does your Bible say? Say it out loud. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Why? For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Take heed, beware. The complete opposite of the system that we live in, the complete opposite of every commercial you see, every advertisement you see that feeds that part that's inside of us. In the world culture that we live in today, life is measured by the abundance of things you have, by the amount of money that you make by how comfortable life can be. Possessions can become very dangerous things. In the beginning, they seem to bring pleasure. They seemed like, oh, we have such a great catch. I finally got it. But over time, they catch us. We need to learn in whatever God has allowed us to have to possess our possessions, not allowing our possessions to possess us. It's, it's a warning from Jesus himself. This rampant sin in society is a common sin in the church of Jesus Christ in our own lives, small or great. I mean, you you think about it, you're like, when's the last time you described yourself as greedy? But you did express greed. You did want something. You did. I mean, the whole, this whole false teaching of the prosperity gospel. And may the Lord bring judgment upon the false teachers that teach this nonsense. But it would never ever in a million years be successful if people weren't greedy. You would just dismiss it. You go, this is, I have everything I need in the Lord. Why would I want another million dollars or three? And of course, they'll go, well, if I had a million dollars, I'd do great things for the Lord. But you got a hundred bucks and you don't do great things from the Lord. Why do you think things are going to change when you have a million or two million? If you haven't learned to be faithful with a dollar, what makes you think God's going to say, well, here, here's, here's a couple million from the liar on TV. Let's see what you do with it. Greed fuels so much false teaching. 
I mean, if the church would rise up and just like stop listening to that, stop watching that, stop funding that, they'd have to find some other way. And maybe the Lord would shut it down. And what's difficult about what I just said is that many people that have, that have kind of followed that stuff, they're just going to be so mad at me. I'm not greedy. Well, then what, do you, what, what fuels you to follow such a false teacher? Well, what is it then? Like somebody looking in the camera and like, well, I won't do it now because somebody will use it against me, but looking in the camera and say, hey, if you give me $100, uh, you'll have a million dollars back or whatever. It's like, well, why would you do that? On top of that, it, nobody gets that kind of money. Like nobody. That it doesn't work. Only for the guy begging you for it and manipulating you for it. Greed and covetousness is more. It's one of those sins in the church that gets approved and nobody talks about, but it disintegrates you from the inside out because you start living like the world. It's how the world lives. Jesus said, beware. Beware of this. Beware of the sin of covetousness because it can make you flip on your possessions. And it can make you, instead of being happy for someone, that they have something you don't have, you're unhappy for someone until you get what they have. That's what covetousness is. You won't be happy until someone has less than you. And yet the Lord, he speaks to us to be thinking of those that have less than us so we might bless them and encourage them and help them in the name of Jesus Christ in a world that has taken advantage of them. You can see how this gets so this unquenchable thirst for getting more can get so deep inside of us. People thirsting for money or thirsting for power or thirsting for position, but it's a thirst that will destroy a person. It'll drown you in sinful desires. Well, notice what happened. In verse 20, Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of the city and spoke to the men saying, these men are at peace with us, therefore let them dwell in the land and trade in it, for indeed the land is large enough for them, for indeed the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters to us as wives, and let us give them our daughters, verse 22. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people, if every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock and their property and every animal of theirs be ours? Now he, you get somebody talking long enough and you'll know exactly what he's thinking. What does Hamor want? Does he want peace? Does he want cooperation? Does he want to live together? No, he wants all their stuff. Who's the more greedy one? Hamor. And he's got a plan. Notice, he says, only let us consent to them and they will dwell with us. It's not going to cost us anything except circumcision, boys. You can do it. It's like, like what are they thinking? Notice verse 24, and all who went out of the gate of his city heeded Hamor and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of the city. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain, I bet they were, but sin brings pain. This world is bringing to account their sinful desires. Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took the sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. If you like to write in your Bibles, this is vengeance. This is the culmination of vengeance. What is the culmination of vengeance? Murder. Murder. Remember what Jesus said. Lest you excuse yourself from this sin. Jesus said, 
that if you even hate your brother, you've murdered them in your hearts. So yeah, we look at here and go, I would never devise something like this. I would never do anything this. I would never get a buddy with a sword and kill a whole group of men. And that's true. But in your heart, it's certainly something that happens as vengeance takes root and makes things worse. They killed, it says in verse 26, Hamor and Shechem. It wasn't, remember, it was, vengeance wasn't just taking out Shechem. It requ- they took everyone out, all the men, and his dad. With the edge of the sword, they took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. You see, Shechem took possession of Dinah and she didn't belong to him. Put her in the house, stuck her in the house. And who knows what difficult, sinful environment that was, but she was released and rescued. Some would come to the Bible as the world does and say, well, see, it worked. They got her out, they rescued her. But you would be, you would be falling into the philosophical falsehood of the end justifies the means, which is what we have learned since we were kids growing up in school, situational ethics, where there's no absolute right or wrong. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If your ethics in God are correct, they'll work in any situation. You don't need to worry. Describe whatever situation you want. It's interesting as the world tries to undermine the absolute truth of the scriptures, if they give you two situations, the two situations are always designed to take you away from absolute truth because they prick the emotions, they prick the issues of directly related to, well, well, I mean, Dinah's in the house, you you should kill all the men, isn't it worth it? No, killing all the men is not worth it. We need to get her out of the house, but we don't need to kill men to do it. This is not a war scene where there are different principles for war, or these are not police officers that have to use force in some respects to rescue someone in danger. These are families. And while there's physical murder and death and vengeance here, the spiritual side of this happens in families all the time. Destroying people and destroying reputations and greed and covetousness and vengeance and separation. To me, it's amazing chapter 34 follows the reconciliation between Jacob and Esau. Reconciliation and the enemy right away attacks by hurting this precious girl and stirring up the anger and vengeance that was already in and the deceit that was already in these boys. And they don't learn their lesson as we see what they do to their own brother later on in Genesis. And the question we have to ask as we step back is, Jacob, where are you? Where's Jacob? And you say, but Eddie shows up in the next verse. Well, where was he for the last 15 verses? Where is he? Now you could say, well, they deceived Jacob. Okay, that's possible. I mean, we don't know. He's just gone. He's not there. There had to be some noticeable, observational uh, demonstration that Hamor and Shechem and all the boys are getting circumcised. I mean, maybe, ah! 
like 50, 60, 80, ah, and then Jacob's like, what's going on? He could have checked in, but he's absent. He finally, and it says in verse 27, that the sons of Jacob came upon the slain, then then they plundered the city. Jacob knows that. Because of their sister and been defiled, they took the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, everything in the city, all their wealth, their little ones, their wives, they took captive, and they plundered even all that was in the houses. And they're living just as bad as the world, or worse. That's what happens when you walk in the flesh and not in the spirit, especially related to personal pain. That's why God says eye for eye, because the tendency is if you lost an eye, you'd want to take out two. And there is justice in the scriptures. And there is righteousness in the scriptures. And there is defense in the scriptures. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, it says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Vengeance is mine. Jacob shows up in verse 30. Hey, Simeon and Levi, you have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites, the Perizzites, and since I'm few in number, they'll gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? He reappears, and what does he say? Look what you guys have done to me. Look what's going to happen to me. He's horrified and couldn't believe. He gives a strong rebuke that's centered really on himself, seeing that his testimony is ruined among the people and they endangered the peace of the surrounding nations. And now they're fractured even deeper in this family. If we learn anything in this chapter, it's this. Revenge only makes things worse. We must trust in the Lord, committing our painful situations to him. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 30, we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge, Jehovah will judge his people. Father, I pray that the heart of vengeance that might be among us today would be assuaged by the peace and the comfort of your Holy Spirit. I pray today, God, that as we have these thoughts of covetousness and greed, and revenge that so um, little spoken about or admitted. You would just do deep work in our hearts, Lord. I know there are crevices in my own heart that would love to take vengeance. And I just confess them to you, God, as if I can stand in the place of holy, righteous God to oversee my life the way I think. That I might have a fresh faith, God, to trust you, to wait upon you, to commit my life to you moment by moment and day by day. That I might cast aside my greed or my covetousness in areas of my life that certainly, instead of being happy for someone, it discourages me. 
I pray, God, that you would remove that more and more. So much you've done, my, done that work in my heart, but God, it's just so much more needs to be done. And I yield to your spirit today that I might be more usable, not less, that our testimony would be greater, not diminished by vengeance and deceit, but rather we'll walk in the light as you walk in the light. We, if we walk in the light as you are in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And I pray for the hurt here, even as one of our brothers mentioned today that perhaps this whole topic of being hurt and defiled and even raped would touch some hearts tonight, Lord. And I pray comfort for those that have been hurt such a way. It's evil and wicked and wrong. And may you continue to minister healing to those that have been violated and hurt and taken advantage of. That you would be able to give comfort as only you can when the words of a man or a woman don't bring comfort and the thought of, the, of that situation doesn't bring comfort. God, it's more than we could bear. And so we ask, God, that you would minister to that through your spirit today. And I wonder who's listening, God, that doesn't have a relationship with you. And this hard situation has hardened their hearts. God, would you bring a softness and draw them to yourself with your cords of love so that there be less barriers through forgiveness, releasing. God, I just pray by your spirit, the authority of your word that you would remove bitterness today from among us, that you just rip it out of our hearts, God, that you would take away the justifying thoughts that we have, that we might continue in such a way where your word says that bitterness, it just takes root in us and defiles those all around us, Lord. We don't want to be defiling and dirtying those that are close to us, Lord, but rather we want to walk with you healed and set free. Bring healing tonight. Bring a, a set free your men and women that love you, even those that need to turn to you for the first time that we might walk in victory and freedom tonight, not vengeance and greed and covetousness. And I pray these things, God, in the authority of your word and in the authority of your name. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.